Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. I'm Sam Parada. I'm Adam Neswold. So we are finally to the last doctrine of grace called perseverance of the saints, which basically means that if you're saved, you're always saved. You can't lose your salvation, and uh, it logically and cohesively connects to all the other doctrines. I mean, if we did not even if we did not have anything in Scripture that said that that God will keep you and persevere persevere you in your faith, but had all the other teachings on election and predestination and all of that stuff that we've already talked about, it would lo- it be logically implied. It, it, it's so logically implied from all the other doctrines that it, it, it should be clear that this is a part of the this set of five. You could say on these doctrines. I mean, this is something that, this is a doctrine that is rejected by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. A lot of people believe you can lose your salvation. Yeah, and and, and here's the thing. This is the best one. It is. This is the one with the most hope, uh, the most peace. Yeah. uh, And and it's, it's a lot deeper than just... Once saved, always saved. Yeah, or absolutely. You can't lose your salvation. I mean, it's talking about a well. It's just a lot deeper than that, and we'll explore that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, th- there's a reason why. Why? And this is one that I would actually agree with. What it's called historically yep. is yep. perseverance of the saints. Yeah, I think that's a great name. You know, it's it's a faith that perseveres. And, yeah, and assurance of our salvation. Right. Um, and when when you come to grips with what Scripture teaches about the assurance of salvation, the the rest that you can have, yeah, and the peace that you can have, not just in your mind and the joy in your heart and in your soul, um, or in your spirit, if you would prefer to call it the spirit, yeah, like just in your innermost being, right, is right. Un, is unfathomable, right. Uh, versus the opposite of sitting there thinking, "Well, did I please God enough today so that I didn't, so that I didn't lose?" Well, my I mean, gift? I mean, honestly, like honestly, if you if you're here right now, maybe you haven't really do- dove into what the Bible says about this, or you haven't really thought about it a lot, but your intuition is that you can lose your salvation. I mean, entertain that reality in your mind, and it should bring you to a panic attack. Like entertain it, and we're gonna. I'm gonna entertain it. Let's entertain it a little bit here. Like, think about every night. Let's just say you think you're saved. Every night you fall asleep, you go to bed. Will I wake up tomorrow still by my will choosing God? By my will and my power, will I be able to be obedient to the scriptures? What if I'm hit with a sudden, unexpected amount of temptation? from the world tomorrow? Will I be able to resist it and persevere in my faith? Will I able be able to continue to choose God over these worldly temptations? I mean, you should be going to bed. If you think you can lose your salvation, you should be going to bed every single night terrified. What happens if you got sick the night before? Or you, you, you get a bug, you get a bacteria, or something, some, you know amoeba is in your brain and starts to eat away at your brain and you didn't know this but you wake up tomorrow and you lose your memory 
or maybe you fall on the ice, you know, walking down the slippery roads of Fargo-Moorhead, and you hit your head and you lose your memory. And 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 your 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 like yeah your ability to make decisions is altered and like you don't really necessarily choose God anymore like you thought you did every other day like what's going on there like oh I guess you're not saved anymore because you're not by your will continuing to persevere your own faith I mean it's terrifying yeah. and or or maybe you're not worried about yourself. Maybe you're confident in your own salvation. It's very prideful. But you've seen, well, I mean, or, or you know, you, you just know that that you are saved. Uh, I, I wasn't trying to speak of a point from pride, but, you know, if you're confident that, you know, you're going to continue to follow God because you're trusting in God to, yeah. to help you with that. But maybe you've seen a loved one profess faith yeah. and then reject it. Right. And so you hold this belief that, well, very clearly, if you don't continue to profess faith, you know, you can make the decision to relinquish your salvation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's a very real reality for some people. Right. Um, and, you know, you so you may not be fearful for yourself. You may be fearful for somebody that you love. Yep, absolutely. And we'll talk about that. And it's very interesting. It's very similar to the to the life of Martin Luther before he— you know, went away from the Catholic Church and tried to reform the Catholic Church and put his theses on the door. And, you know, before all that, you know, he was in great torment in his soul and his very being and his mind because he could not find assurance of salvation in the Catholic way of salvation. In the Catholic way of salvation, you merit your your righteousness through the sacraments through good works. So you go to the confessional and you you confess your sin and you do penance and then you go to mass and you take of the actual body, eat of the actual body of Christ and drink his actual blood and you merit more righteousness. And then, you know, you go through all these different sacraments and and but you're never you can never get to the point to where you, you can be assured that I have now merited 100% righteousness. I will go to heaven. And so it drove Martin Luther nearly mad to the point where he would self-abuse himself mm -hmm. to atone for his sin. He would whip his own back because he, he was trying to merit this. He, he would be in the confessional confessing every little sin that hours. he— Hours. Hours. More than anyone. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> the people probably, the priests in the, the confessional that he would be confessing to are probably like, oh, no, here goes another five-hour session with Martin Luther— you know, like drove him mad. And then when he finally saw the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, it was the most amazing thing in the world, mm -hmm. as it should be. That's why it's so unbelievable that our salvation, our justification is entirely a work of God given to us as a gift, which is grace. Right. We didn't do anything. And you know, hopefully you've listened to the other podcasts on the Doctrines of Grace. Hopefully you're not coming in just fresh into this one because we'll probably be referring to a lot of them or implying or expecting you to have an understanding of election and depravity and limited atonement and things like that. But if we think, I mean, we'll kind of do a little bit of review, but let's just think about for a moment salvation. How is one saved? And 
if we understand how one is saved, the thought of losing that salvation is absolutely absurd. It is so absurd it makes no sense. So, how one is saved is a refreshment. We are guilty before a holy God, and that guilt, and that sin that we have, is deserving of, rightly, an eternal punishment in hell. The wrath of God must be poured out on all sin. That's where we're all at. We're all born sinners. We're all born separated from God. We're all born under his wrath. Children of wrath. And so God, being just and loving, must punish sin. So if you are saved, it's because Christ chose to take your sin on himself. He chose to become sin, who knew no sin, as your substitute. And then the wrath of God, the real righteous holy wrath of God the Father, was actually poured out on Jesus Christ in your place. So God punished that sin. He punished it actually. It was real. It was actually punished. Like it, it's not just symbolic. No, it was real. It really punished. And so God remains just, and God is just in the fact that He will not punish sin twice. What? Like if you know if somebody pays their if the law says that if you do this and that means you have to spend ten years in prison and you served your ten years in prison, that would be unjust of the law or of the government to then have you be in there for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So there is a sense if God the Father punished your sin on Christ on the cross, that sin is punished. It's done. It's it's done. That's why the Bible speaks so clearly on you have died with Christ. You've died. Your old self, your sinful self has died. It's been punished on Christ because Christ became sin, your sin. Okay, so that's part one. Part two is, we've been talking about this too, the gospel comes to you. Uh, God makes the, the general word an effectual word. He, The Spirit enters into you, regenerates your heart. You are given faith as a gift, and through faith, righteousness. So Christ lived a perfect life before he went to the cross. Uh, and he earned a righteousness. He lived a righteous life. And now that righteous life is given to you as a gift through faith. So those who are saved, one, had their sin punished on Christ, and two, have been given as a gift the righteousness of Christ. So, let's just say, if you can lose your salvation, that means that you have, one, had your sin punished on Christ, two, have been given the righteousness of Christ. Now, losing your salvation means that, I mean, think about this, entertain this, that somehow, some way, supernaturally, the punishment that Christ felt, actually felt, for your sin is now somehow removed and now you are now left to face that punishment in the future. The righteousness of Christ that has been given to you is removed. Like, think about the transaction happening because people renounce their faith every day all around the world. I'm sure thousands of people around the world are renouncing their faith, their supposed faith, which would therefore mean that if we have the cross in view, that the amount of wrath that Christ is taking or the amount of sin that's on his shoulders or whose sin is on his shoulders is in constant fluctuation. It's constantly changing. And that 
in a sense, his work on the cross was not final, as the Bible says it is. It's finally, it was finished. It's done. It's complete. Absolutely finished. That would be a lie then. Like, it would be in constant fluctuation if people can lose their salvation. Like, what? And that makes sense in there in many in doctrine anyway, because if if the atonement is for every single person, if Christ died for every single person, uh, there's something symbolic happening there or, or not real. Like, okay, well, does that mean if I choose God then uh, and I wasn't, you know, let's just entertain the Arminian perspective here. Does that mean now 2,000 years after the cross, now my sin is somehow now put on Christ's shoulders, which happened 2,000 years ago, and, that, and then he paid for it somehow? Like, it just doesn't make sense. It's incoherent. It doesn't make sense, and it doesn't fit with what the Scripture talks about. Do you have anything to add, Adam? <laughs> I've been ranting well, a little I mean, bit. I think ah, there's there's a lot to to say and unpack about the uh, about the perseverance of the saints. Yeah. So I mean, you know, on this particular topic, how do these all fit together? Well, it logically makes sense that if God foreknew, like Rome again, if we go back to Romans eight twenty nine and thirty. Yeah. God foreknew those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined he called. Yeah. And those whom he called he justified. Right. And those whom he justified he, he glorified. also glorified. Right. You know, Paul uses the term those whom he justified he also glorified. Well, glorification is a future state. Yep. None of us are glorified yet. But Paul talks about it in Romans 8.30 in the past tense, because that is how sure it is that it's going to happen. Right. It's so sure that you can talk about it as if it already has happened. Right. Uh, This is a a promise of God. Yeah. And it it only makes sense if if we believe that we are totally depraved. Yeah. That we cannot seek God of our own power. So then God is the one who does election. Right. And then calls and then does the saving work. And then, you know, like in Philippians, you know, is it Philippians? He who began a good work and you will also finish it. Yep. Yep. So um, it, it is it is that, that finishing aspect. Yeah. You know, this is all within the power of God. If, if God gave you your salvation, it is not yours to relinquish. Right. It is God's to fulfill. Right. And so it is a gift that was, that was given to you. You cannot give it back. Right, you don't you don't own it. You don't possess it. Right, it you know Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. Right, so you know that in and of itself too. Jesus Christ is the one who is the author of your faith. You 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 don't you're not the author of your faith, and you're not the perfecter of your faith. Jesus Christ is no, and so there is there is that logical connection. Right. Uh, if if we can't a, a, attain salvation by ourselves, and it is given to us by God, then it is only God who can take it away. Right. And so the only question then remains is, does God allow us to take it away? Oh yeah, does He allow Himself to take it away? Yeah. Yeah. Or or, or Himself, sure. which you know yeah, right. we will we will answer that towards the end. Right. I mean, it just blows my mind. Uh I think it's good to say, too, like, throughout Scripture we see 
we, I mean, we ask the question, why does God save us? He doesn't just save us just to save us from this penalty and then just let us go on our merry way. Oh, I saved you from hell. Okay, go on, live life like you want to live it. No, he saves us to conform us to the image of Christ, to bring us back to a perfect state of worship. We were created by God to worship him, to know him, to glorify him. And because of our sin, we are unable to do that. And we don't want to do that. So God has provided and created a way where we could be brought back justly and righteously and rightly to that perfect state of worship as we were designed to be in. And so it's entirely a work of God. So he's not going to just take our sin on his shoulders as Christ did, face a holy wrath from God the Father, effectually call us, change us, give us new hearts, take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, do all this work of justification and regeneration, and then just say, oh, well, giving the reins over to you now, and you can run this cart right into the, you know, the side of the road into the ditch and just destroy it. Like all this work that God did, now I just somehow have the ability to usurp it and destroy it. And like, no, God saves me to make me, to finish this work. Like the Bible tells us, and we'll look at these scriptures, to finish it, to make me a perfect worshiper. And then we will be glorified, which means we will be given new bodies that no longer are tainted by the flesh and no longer have fleshly desires. So then all we want, all we desire, all we do is worship God perfectly and glorify him as we were created to do. That's the goal. Glorification is the goal. The new heaven and the new earth where there is no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more temptation, none of that, no more evil. That's the goal. A clean bride for Christ. Exactly. God, I like can't even believe it that people want to think that we can just like <laughs> like what? I mean, I can't even conceive of it like losing your salvation. But the point is why this is so troublesome for so many people and rightly so is that we are very bad judges of people's salvation. Mhm. Or maybe even our own. We look at Joe Blow over there and we go, yeah, he's a Christian. He professes to be a Christian. He's going to church every Sunday. Look at that. He's doing some pretty good things in the community, you know. Like, and we think, oh, certainly he's a true believer. Certainly he's sealed with the Spirit. I can see through his bones and I can see that Spirit sealing him. And we think, oh, next year, Joe Blow committed adultery on his wife, left his family, left his kids, you know. Yeah, well, you know, I mean— Living a pagan life, renounces the faith, and— it, oh. let, me, let me just say this. Christian sin— Yeah. The, the mark of a Christian is not, is, is not their sin. Right. Or is not, is not their lack of sin. Right. Um, Christian sin, so if, if we're basing the argument that you can lose your salvation on some level of sin that happens— Yeah. That's that's false to begin with because, right. you know, I mean, we see pastors, you know, people that are in the ministry fall into these traps. They commit adultery. They um, they break up their own homes. They right. they leave their wife and kids. We I mean, we see these things happen, um, and 
that does not mean that that person is not saved. Not necessarily. Right. Uh, right. It could know, be good evidence that they probably were never saved. It, it could be. Uh, or it could be that they're just a Christian who fell into temptation. Yep. And that's the thing. The Bible does teach backsliding. It does mm-hmm. teach stagnation. It does teach these, like, Christians fall into moments of sin. Yeah. They do, certainly. Yeah. But the Bible does teach, though, that those who practice sin have never known the truth. Uh, and so there's this there's this difference. Right. The Christian, think of David, perfect example of mm-hmm. that of that. David, you know A man after God's own a heart. A man after God's own heart had the spirit like I mean it's David, it's King David, poster right. child. <laughs> yep. The guy commits adultery and then kills the husband. Right. The difference is that David repented. Right. And, and that's that's the mark of a believer. Yeah, is a continual repentance. The mark of a true believer is, yeah, we sin. We likely sin every single day as a believer in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. But the heart of a true believer is a heart of constant repentance. I the the spirit continues to reveal my sin to me progressively and I continue to repent of that sin and I yeah. continue to turn to Christ. Uh and I turn continue to seek after him and run after him and go to the scriptures and be renewed in knowledge, uh, and then oh, more scripture or more. The scripture has revealed more sin in my life to me. Is it's been searching my heart and it's been revealing these things to me. And I continue to repent and repent. Oh, all of a sudden, you know, I, I gave into a temptation and I fell for a moment, but then I repent and I turn back to Christ. And it's a constant life of that. Right. And you, you, there's a lot of there's a lot of analogies that help describe this. Like the Christian life is like hiking up a mountain. And you're you're going to the summit. You're hiking to the summit. The summit is glorification, but sometimes you hit a patch of slippery ground and you slide down ten feet, and you have to retrudge up. But your your face is always fixed on the mountaintop, though you might have periods of falling back a little bit. You're always still looking forward and moving forward in a, in a degree, mm-hmm. and there will be progress in the Christian life, and. Or you can think of it as like you're in a river and you're swimming up river or you're trudging against the current. And sometimes you, your foot on the bottom of the river slips and falls. You hit a slippery rock and you, the current pushes you back 10 feet, but you keep trudging forward. That's the Christian life. Yeah. It's a life of constant fighting. Yep. It's a constant, it's a life of, of battle. Um, well, and, and I think Paul, Paul, Paul speaks to this in scripture a lot of what you just said in Romans, in Romans 7. 7. Yep. In Romans 7:21, he says, "So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members or his flesh yep. another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death?" Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right. Right. Like, let me let me be clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right. If there is no condemnation, you cannot lose your salvation. Right. If you are in Christ Jesus and there is no condemnation, 
well, I mean, that's it. You cannot be condemned. Right. Who's who's going to condemn you? And we'll get to that a little bit later on at right. the end of Romans 8. So, I mean, if if you're holding on to a belief that you can lose your salvation, you need to come to some kind of reconciliation with this passage that I just read. Yeah. It's going to be very hard to. So let's just do a scripture proof then of yeah. this doctrine. Because the point is, again, and we've been talking about this a lot, and we'll talk about a little bit, little bit later on what we call those problem passages. Oh, this seems to be teaching that maybe you can lose your salvation. Uh, and we did that with limited atonement and things like that. But we have to, again, hermeneutical principles, The general a general principle is you interpret hard-to-understand passages with clear passages, explicit, you interpret implicit passages with explicit passages. So the question is, in Scripture, do we find explicitly stated, you know, is it explicitly stated that you can't lose your salvation? Romans 8.1. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just and, read it. And there's so many more. So many more. So there is explicit passages on the teaching that you cannot lose your salvation. Okay, great. Should we get a couple others? Oh, yeah, we're going to go through a lot of them. So I'm just kind of prefacing oh, it sure. here. <laughs> yeah, so there are explicit passages. That's the point. So clear, contextually clear. I'm not just taking these passages out of context, nor so many others in history. We're not taking these passages out of context to, you know, morph them to, to say, oh, God says you can't lose your salvation. No, it contextually says that. Mm-hmm. It's very clear. And they're everywhere. Uh, so that means then we come across these, you know, what we call those problem passages where I go, huh, that seems odd that, you know, in my stupidity, it almost seems as though it says you can lose your salvation. Yeah. But it's not explicit, nor is it, nor is it contextually derived. So if you take in, into, you know, into context, what's being said around that problem passage you'll soon figure out, oh, it doesn't mean that. Mm-hmm. I just forgot what I just read, or I haven't read two verses later, and I just totally plucked these two verses out and thought, this seems odd. But now, because I know my hermeneutical principles, now that I look at the context, I'm corrected, and I see indeed this does not teach me that I can right. lose my salvation. And we have to separate our own experience from it. Yep, exactly. To we, quote, we can't rely on our feelings. Yep. To quote my own, uh, my my old pastor, uh, Pastor Gary Walton, uh, the person with the experience, well, if you take the person with the experience or the person with the good theology, the person with the good theology is always right. Yep. Right. And that's a hard thing today. People, oh man, and that's just postmodernism too. It's just this. That's your favorite thing. Ever. Oh. Oh, hey, hey, a little uh, plug here. I'm going down to Kansas City, and I'm going to talk with a a fellow ministry uh, comrade, and we are going to be talking about postmodernism. So the next, you could say, series of podcasts coming up soon will be postmodernism in our current context. So hold out for that. It's it's coming. (laughs) (laughs) But feelings, like feelings, like we, we think feelings are, it's the Trump. Feelings guide everything. How I feel, how I feel. That's why we have this this issue of transgenderism right now because we have biological males feeling like they're females. Biological females f- 
feeling like they're males. They're 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 judging their very being and nature and identity on a feeling. Their biology does not prove or say that they are in the wrong body. Nothing does except a feeling, an emotion, something that you shouldn't give any weight to. We give weight to the revealed truth of Scripture. And so the same is true with theology. Mm-hmm. We, we have all these feelings, but what does the Scripture say? I mean, good night. <laughs> Don't trust your feelings. Right. Because we know that... The heart is wicked and deceitful. Exactly. So let's go to some of these Scriptures. What You got one pulled up? I do. I have John 10 here. Oh, yeah. We referenced this in our previous episode. That's a good chapter. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I mean, we could read the whole thing. Um, but <laughs> I think uh, I think I'll start in verse 14. Uh, so John 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Uh, we talked about that passage in previous episodes too. Yeah. Uh, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so... Uh, this is important in establishing um, the good shepherd uh, part of this, where Jesus is talking about um, the uh, he, or him being the shepherd and us being the sheep. And then later on in verse 27, this is what we talked about last week. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, I mean, I mean the Jews, right? The, the Jews responded to this by trying to stone him, by the way, in verse 31. Yeah. But, um, I, in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No hmm. one will snatch them out hmm. of my hand. Huh. So it sounds like they can lose their salvation. <laughs> it's like, no, no. Like, what? Like, yeah. explicit language. That's the point. Explicit right. language. Very, very explicit Jesus language. wraps it up tight. He, he gives us no room to, to think otherwise. Which is really nice mm-hmm. when he does that, and he does that a lot on a lot of things. He does it on election. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, it's 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 really unbelievable. And it, even talking about the phrase "eternal life," like he gives them eternal life. And this John fourteen, and this is eternal life that they may know you, mm-hmm. the one and true God. So eternal life doesn't doesn't necessarily start at uh, glorification right. eternal life starts at at justification at conversion mm-hmm. that they may know you so we are given eternal life at justification we are when we are saved by God when we are given the righteousness of Christ we have eternal life yep 
and if I correct me if I'm wrong, but eternal life or etern- the word eternal means forever doesn't end. It it does. Okay. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> like that's the point. You see all over even passages that you wouldn't say this is proving or this is very in a very explicit proof of of the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. If it contains the word eternal life and it says you have eternal life, then it actually is a mm-hmm. a, a passage that does prove perseverance of the saints. Right. Because that's what it means. Eternal life. You can't lose it. You have it forever. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to read another passage from the Gospel of John. I'm going to read uh in chapter 6 verses 41 through 51. So again, just listen to the language that Jesus is using. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, "I am the bread that comes down from heaven." They they said, "Is this not is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we knew? How does he say, oh goodness, I can't read right now. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered him, do you not grumble? Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, if God has, the father has given them to Christ, you know, then they will be raised up on the last day. Mm-hmm. And, By the way, for anybody who's doubting effectual call, right, right, no one, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws. Unless, him. No one, yeah. It's like, oh, okay, goodness. But this period of time that you are thinking that you can lose your salvation is in between when God, you know, when you're saved, and then the last day. Mm-hmm. So Jesus clearly states that. God the Father had given them has given this person to Christ. Christ will raise them up on the last day. So there is no possibility of losing your salvation. And I'll continue starting in verse forty-five. It is written in the prophets, and they will. And oh, wow, I got to just bring this text closer to me because I'm really botching reading this out loud. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And so what you're saying, if you're saying that you can lose your salvation, is that you have believed. And then, but then also now you can not believe and then not have eternal life. But whoever believes has eternal life. And eternal life is, like we said, eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your father, fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So, if anybody believes in Christ, he will live forever. A true belief. He will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, if you believe in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, if you repent of your sins, if you confess Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you will live forever. It's not its not something you lose. Right. And let me just play devil's advocate for a second here and then, and then counter it. Sure. Uh, but, you know, often you'll hear people say, and, and I even say this sometimes, right? Everybody has eternal life. It's just a matter of whether it's oh, yeah, with yeah. God or separate from God. Yep, yep. And we say that to illustrate things. It's not biblically accurate, though, when we say that. Yeah. Um, because the, 
that's let me let me rephrase that. Y- yes, you could argue that it's biblically accurate to say that that everybody lives. Well, forever. maybe you should change the word life and do it. But you're an but that's soul. not what that's not what the Bible calls life. Like right. Um the the eternal life of a non-believer, somebody who is eternally separated from God in the end. The Bible does not call that life. The Bible actually calls that death. Right. So in in Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Yeah. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Right. So the Bible calls that the second death. Right. So when we... When we say, look, everybody has eternal life, it's just a matter of, you know, if it's separate from God, like if it's in the lake of fire or if it's in in heaven or in the new earth with Jesus, um, what we're saying is, yeah, you know, your soul is going to exist forever, In but if you're an unbeliever, your soul is going to exist in a state of second death. Yeah, uh, and if you're a believer, it's going to exist in eternal life, which is what Jesus is talking about here in John, to know you as, as Sam pointed out, right. And even if we back up one more chapter to John chapter five, verse twenty four, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Mm-hmm. So we have a promise that those who believe in Christ have eternal life and they will not come into judgment. So if you could lose your salvation, Jesus would be breaking this promise because right. that means you will come into judgment at some point mm-hmm. and that you don't have eternal life. So we, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, you, yeah, you make Jesus out to be a liar in a lot of different things and a lot of different promises that he makes in a lot of different places you make him out to be a liar, mm-hmm. really, is what it comes down to, but that's not good. Right. <laughs> I mean, and the whole point, again, the only reason people struggle with this is because they have an experience where they see somebody apparently leave the faith. Right. And then they have that experience. They elevate it as the all, like, this is this is this is the truth— I have seen the truth and I have interpreted it rightly. And so then they read the scriptures in a, in a different way. But they come into it with their pre-understanding, their pre-biases, their, these presuppositions that have been shaped by their, their experience of reality. But their experience of reality might be flawed. It, right. Um, and there's a passage that speaks directly to it, to to what you were just talking about. And I always confuse where it is it's either in james or in one of the epistles of john uh it's it's the passage that talks about uh they went out from us because they were not of us oh yeah those who were of us oh man good grief and i and i'm sorry to the audience i should have had this one pre-prepared because i always lose it i always get it confused i know i have those passages too um so i'm okay you you find it and i'll find and i'll talk about a different passage okay so i'm going to talk about pass this this passage and this is going to be an interesting topic right here is matthew 24 this matthew 24 verse 24 is going to be a passage we talk about on a later podcast when we talk about uh, not 
trusting in signs and wonders that you see. Uh, Matthew 24 is Jesus's longest teaching on eschatology. Yeah, so we will be definitely revisiting Matthew 24. But listen to what he says here. It's very interesting. He says, for false Christs, and he, again, he's talking about the end of times, and we're not going to, I'm not going to really explain that at all. But listen, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So, here's the reality. At the end of time, in the end times, there will there'll be f- these false Christs, people that say they're Jesus. Okay, we even have that happening right now. There's this God the Mother cult where apparently Jesus is an Asian man and he's in Asia right now. He's come back. A lot of people believe that. This cult was was really making way at the MSUM uh, Moorhead and was even coming over to NDSU a little bit, but now they're gone somehow. They just didn't last. But. They had a little bit of a following over there a couple years ago. But false Christs, false prophets will arise. That's a promise. And they will perform great signs and wonders. Like great signs and wonders. Like things that will blow our minds. Things that are actually real. Mm-hmm. Like we even we even hear later on that like in other places in Scripture that they'll even call fire down from heaven. Or the Antichrist will you know ha- have a mortal wound and he'll come back. Like he'll survive it. So there's there's these crazy things that they're doing and supernaturally real, like real things. Like this isn't fake. This isn't magic. This is real supernatural power, demonic power, satanic power. And then he goes on to say, and this is the point I want to make, uh, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Their, their deception will be so unbelievable that if it were possible, the elect would go astray, but... He's implying that it's not possible that the elect will go astray. That's the point. If it was possible, they would go astray. Which means that if you're not an elect, you will be deceived, certainly. Their hocus-pocus, their their signs and wonders will indeed convince you if you're not an elect, and you will go astray. You will totally be duped and deceived by the Antichrist and by these false prophets and false Christs. But so clearly stated by Jesus that it's not possible for the elect to go astray. Why? Because Jesus has promised that he will persevere them, that he will sustain their faith, mm-hmm. and that he will keep them. Nobody can pluck them out of his hand. Right. Did you find your passage? I did, and it actually ties directly into what you were talking about, so that worked really well. So it, it, is, it is 1 John. Oh, yes. First uh, John chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is last hour. I want to pause right right there because um, John is talking about two different things here. There is a figure um, which Paul refers to, Paul calls the man of lawlessness in 1 Thessalonians, um, that that we typically uh, talk about as the Antichrist. And so when we say the Antichrist, especially in America, that's we we have this vision of, of a single individual. Yep. yep. And so John is saying here, that's the first one that he mentions in verse 18. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. And then but then John says, So now many Antichrists have come, which is exactly what Jesus was talking about. Many false prophets have come. Yep. Many people have come claiming to be the Christ. Yep. They're they're Antichrists, just not the Antichrist, Antichrist. Yep. right? Okay, so 
So many antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, not speaking about the antichrists now, but speaking about members of the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are that they all are not of us. But you have been appointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. Uh, so when people leave the church, especially when people leave the church to become false teachers. Yeah. Uh, but when people leave the church uh, or, or renounce the faith. Right. What John is saying here is the most obvious answer is that they were never part of the faith to begin with. Exactly. So that is one option. Yeah. You know, when we see people that are when when we have this experience where we see people that lived a life that looked that looked like faith, that looked like they were Christians, they professed to they they professed Christ as their savior. They lived a life of works that backed up their their profession of faith. Yep. Uh, and, but then all of a sudden they leave the faith. This is one op- one option. There there is another option, and I'll talk about it here in a second. But this is one option that it was fake to begin with. Yeah, it was never true salvation. They were doing it to feel good or to fit in, or um, or because they thought it's what they should do. Um, I think that. We can see this a lot with teenagers in the American church. Oh, yeah. Um, where, you know, I mean, we send teenagers to youth groups, and uh, the youth groups could be good or bad, but they're in a setting where they're with their peers, and they're supposed to look and behave like Christians. Um, they see people getting rewarded for professing belief. Yeah. Um, so they profess belief, and even for a time, they may, they may convince themselves that that's what they believe but they don't have a heart change Mm -hmm. and then they they get out of high school and they go into the world they go to college yep and they realize that they don't actually believe those things yeah uh so they're so they never had a heart change to begin with yeah um and so they they leave the the faith or the church because they were never part of there's a real statistic on that i think it's like of those of american teenagers that grew up in going to church uh, regularly with their family, there's there's s- some variation, but they say anywhere from like I think seventy to ninety percent of them. In some studies, see as more up closer to the ninety percent will leave the church mm-hmm. when they go to college. Yep. Within a year of graduating high school, they will seventy to ninety percent will leave. Yeah. So uh, that's one option. The other option is. Uh, it's like you said before, they're, they're backsliding, which it's a weird word. I know. I don't really like it either. Um, it's because it's been abused, right? Yeah. Like just because some, like somebody could abandon the faith for now. Yeah. And God will bring them back, which is exactly what we mean when we talk about perseverance of the saints. It's, it's, it's the perfect example of Peter. Yep. Exactly. Yep. That's what Peter is is the perfect example of what if you want to call it backsliding, whatever. Mm-hmm. 
he was never totally lost though. He it's not as though he had salvation and righteousness and then lost it and then God gave it back to him. He was always there. Yep. But there is a there is a level of like you you're sealed with the spirit, but then you're also filled with the spirit. And right. that's a whole other topic we can talk about that i should be writing down how many times today have i said that's another topic we'll talk about that later and then i'll totally forget that i said that (laughs) you gotta make a list of these things that we're gonna talk about well it's a good thing these are recorded yeah (laughs) (laughs) but they're like in that context of being filled with the spirit in ephesians you can be you can grieve the spirit yeah don't grieve the spirit so our perception of the spirit's control of our life or filling uh fluctuates and when we enter in or fall into a a time of temptation and sinning where we sin it grieves the spirit because the spirit is contrary to the desires of the flesh and contrary to sin obviously so it grieves him and it can seem as though our faith is very dry and and like you're in a you're in the valley mm-hmm. really is where you're at and this happens a lot in life it happens a lot in the christian walk you will go through valleys and ditches up to mountaintops in a matter of hours sometimes like it's crazy how much our our perception of our faith fluctuates right though we always have saving faith and faith is another thing too that that grows like some people mm-hmm. have weak faith some people have strong faith you're the bible says that you're apportioned an amount of faith but even faith the size of a mustard seed saves you right so there is this reality too that your amount of faith isn't isn't constant it does change and sometimes you live and act and make decisions more faithfully than other times because anything that does not come from faith is sin, Romans mm-hmm. fourteen. Right. So yeah, sinners do, or I mean, believers do sin, and they do fall into moments of sin. And if we judged somebody's salvation by a snapshot of their life, we would think that they went in and out of salvation, <laughs> right, <laughs> thousands of times through their lifetime. <laughs> not yeah. the case. Okay, I want to talk about on this thread of our perception of people, the parable of the sower talks about it too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to, it's kind of a long section, so I'm going to skip the actual parable and go to when Jesus explains it. He goes, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So there's four different places that the seed is sown. The seed is the gospel. The first one was the path, the hard path. It's rock hard. Think of it as that hard heart we've been talking about uh, that Ezekiel says that hard heart replaces it with the heart of flesh. So this is just when you share the gospel with somebody and they just flat out reject it. They don't come to faith. It's so clear. Yep, they're still not a believer. Obvious. But then he goes on. After what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. 
so this is a person that you, we've all seen them. We've all seen these people. They profess faith. Maybe you've actually evangelized them, and they come to they they appear to come to faith. They appear to accept the gospel. They appear to repent and believe. From mm-hmm. what you can tell, they have. They start to come to church with you. Oh, it looks great. They have joy. Like the, Jesus literally says it. He receives it with joy. And who knows how long this person is in this state for? But they have no root. They have no true saving faith. The Spirit hasn't supernaturally acted upon their life and gave them a new heart. This hasn't happened. But they somehow are able to fake it. They probably are faking themselves out too. They probably don't know this, that they're actually not saved. They think they are. They've put their hope and their assurance in something wrong, mm-hmm. something false, maybe a feeling, probably a feeling. That's why it says joy. But then it says when persecution comes, they immediately fall away. And this happens all the time. As soon as some type of trial or suffering, maybe they, they've said they're a Christian their whole life, all of a sudden their, 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 their closest loved one dies, maybe a child dies, and all of a sudden they question everything. They question their faith completely. How could God allow this? And I can't believe in a God that would allow this. And I fall away from the faith. We see examples of this all the time. I mean, there's even an example of it was a it was a, maybe a year ago now. There was an article on a prominent megachurch pastor uh, visits Holocaust uh, visits Auschwitz in Germany, or I mean in Poland, Poland, and and uh, can't believe what she saw, and leaves the faith, rejects the faith because she couldn't believe how God could allow something like this to happen. Like that's a that's a form of of this trial or suffering where she, it just doesn't compute in her unregenerated mm-hmm. heart or in her head and rejects the faith. So persecution. This is why the prosperity gospel is so horrible. Right. <laughs> because persecution will come mm-hmm. and suffering will come and it's promised to come. Yeah. And part of the reason that we go through suffering and persecution is to reveal the authenticity of faith. It helps yourself know that your faith is authentic when you endure persecution and you you rejoice in persecution, but it also helps others around you authenticate your mm-hmm. faith. It also grows the church. Exactly. Like yeah, I mean, the periods of greatest growth in the church in in church history have been the periods where it was persecuted the heaviest. Yeah, God makes you know what is he? He makes the wisdom of a man foolishness. Mm-hmm. I mean, praise God for the persecution of the Jerusalem church uh, yeah. immediately after Christ died, because otherwise it wouldn't have ever spread. Nope. Beyond that, right? So that was that's that's the first example that Jesus gives of somebody that appears to be a Christian, but then you know isn't. Never a Christian. The next one is uh, as for the what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So this is the person, again, that appears to be a believer. They appear to have come to Christ. You know, it happened a lot when I was working with crew on a campus. You'd, you'd see, you'd share the gospel with somebody, they'd accept it. 
Uh, they'd start to come to your community group or your Bible study. They seem so awesome. Like they got it. Like it's it happened. Like, whoa, here it is. Like they're so happy. They're digging into the scriptures, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden on Snapchat or whatever, you see them getting drunk at a party. And again, we've talked about how sinners or believers are sinners and believers certainly will fall into moments of sin. Mm-hmm. But you're like, okay, well maybe they're, you know, they're still young in the faith. They're they're still wrestling through these 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 more major sins in their life that are more obvious to the world. But also they don't start coming to Bible study. They don't respond to your text messages. They're off the rocker and they're just totally back into the life that they were living before you shared the gospel with them. And it's the dog, it's the dog re- returning to his vomit and totally gone. Totally gone. And I had, a, I mean, I had a, a perfect example of this a guy that I interacted with when I was at NDSU. I mean, was starting to come to our Bible study, was super engaged, super like all in, like, yes, he wants to do this. I uh, met up with him one-on-one, went through the gospel with him, totally said, yeah, this is what I believe, went through, walked through the first chapter of, of John together, totally followed, yeah, I believe this, yeah, I'm all in, blah, 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 blah. All of a sudden, he stopped coming to Bible study, didn't really know why, fell off the face of the earth. I thought maybe he's just busy with school. And now he's happily together with another man. He's a homosexual, like totally living that life and happy to do it. Like, oh, yeah, he was never truly saved. He was the one whose the seed fell on the thorns and the thistles, and the desires of the world choked it. Mm-hmm. And then we finally have, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, and indeed bears great or and bears fruit and yields in one case, hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. So we also see in Scripture, in John 15, this reality that the bearing of fruit proves that you are a disciple of Christ. Yep. No fruit, you're not saved. Mm-hmm. But So while we're talking about these people that appear to be saved and then, and then leave, or people who, who claim salvation or claim faith in Christ and then abandon it, uh, what are we to do with those people? And this is why I always get these passages confused. Oh. Because uh, James five nineteen and 20 says, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, let me be clear. James is not teaching here that we have the power to save anybody. Right. What James is saying is that if he's saying my brothers, so he's speaking to the church, if any among you, if any of the um if if any among you, if anybody who's in your presence or, you know, wanders from the truth of Christ, the truth, right? The gospel truth. Yeah. Um and then someone from the church goes out and brings that person back to the truth. Um Whoever brings back a sinner. So James is calling that person who left a sinner. Yeah. Not a saved person. Right. He's calling them a sinner. If you bring a sinner back from his wandering, 
then you save their soul. Right. Right. So, like, uh, James is saying that these people who left didn't have salvation. They were still dead in their sin. Right. And by evangelizing them, yeah, bringing them back, you can, um, not back to the faith, bringing them back to the presence of the church, Yeah, you can then allow them, like, through evangelism, to obtain salvation yeah. through the power of Christ, right. thus saving their soul. Right. Okay, so we're going to make this a part two because we're at an hour, and I think we have a lot more to say. Yes. Because I know we do. Because <laughs> we haven't even yet went to those problem passages. And I do want to talk about, too, just, uh, okay, how do, what are the assurances of salvation? Like, what, what, how, what gives me assurance of my salvation? What gives me assurance that, Adam is saved. You know, like I can't see his heart. Like, right. <laughs> well, he could be. You know, I could be teaching with a non-believer right now. But no, <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm pretty I, sure I that I don't think so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Adam's saved. So, what are those things that gives me the evidence? What is the evidences of of salvation so I can know? And and because it would be pretty hard going through life with brothers and sisters that you aren't sure are your brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want to know that. We want to know in our own hearts. I want to have assurance of salvation. I want to be assured that the people around me that are in my church, that I do ministry with, are saved. So what are those evidences? We're going to talk about that, talk about the problem passages, uh, and even, I think, mention a little bit about this fact that in Scripture we still do have an urge to persevere in our faith. We have a command to do it. We have an urge to do it. We have warnings that if you don't persevere, this is what will happen. But it's those warnings and those things aren't, they're not saying that you can lose it, but there is this urgency. There is this, this, this reality that we, we have to be active in our faith and active in putting to death our flesh. And if we aren't active in it, and if we don't persevere in doing that, what will, it turns out that we, weren't actually saved in the mm-hmm. first place. But we'll we'll get into a little bit of that. But turn tune back in for the part two of this the last, you know, doctrine of grace, perseverance of the saints. Thanks for listening. Bye.